You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Paul Lazarus. In the 1980s, I produced and hosted a radio series called Anything Goes, a celebration of the American musical theater. Now the Broadway Podcast Network is bringing back these shows. Today, part one of a four-part look at the career of Broadway composer Burton Lane. Lane is best known for his remarkable scores for Finian's Rainbow and On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. This program was originally broadcast in 1981. Good afternoon. Today's edition of Anything Goes is the first of two programs examining the work of composer Burton Lane. Mr. Lane's numerous theater and film scores include Royal Wedding, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, Babes on Broadway, and the classic Finian's Rainbow. Over the years, Mr. Lane has collaborated with most of the great lyricists, including Yip Harburg, Alan J. Lerner, Ira Gershwin, and Dorothy Fields. For the next hour and a half, you'll be listening to a pre-recorded interview with the composer and many of Mr. Lane's delightful songs. I'm Paul Lazarus. I hope you'll join me this Sunday and next as anything goes saunters down memory lane.
know you were born in New York uh, in 1912, in right. February. Did you grow up uh, your whole life in New York City, pretty much? Well, I my, mean, as a my youth was spent in New York, yes. I, uh, I was born here. I went to school here, although I didn't go very long uh, to school. I, uh, I think the, my last year in school was uh, freshman year at High School of Commerce. Don't ask me how I got to the High School of Commerce. When I was in high school, my freshman year in high school, I got a contract with Remix. I also had a contract with the Schubert's to write a show. I was 15 or 16 years old. How did you get that contract? A friend of my father's knew Harold Stern. Harold Stern, in those days, not only had a, a, was a conductor of a band that played during the summer months at Manhattan Beach, but he was also the musical director for the Schubert's. And uh, people had gone to him, these friends of my folks, and uh, said that they knew a young genius. See, I used to be a genius. Then I outgrew it and became like everybody else. Uh, and he uh, heard songs that I had written, melodies I had written, and arranged for me to play for J.J. Schubert. My father at that time was a builder. He was putting up a, an apartment house in Brooklyn in the the steel girders had just gone up. And one morning, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I heard the phone ring. Now, we never had phones ring 2 o'clock in the morning. And I heard my father's voice very shocked and, and, and frightened. Apparently, he thought uh, some terrible thing had happened. A steel girder had fallen, had collapsed or something, and somebody got hurt. And it turned out that it was Harold Stern at the Schubert office. This is when they conducted their business. At, they, they would start after curtain time, after the shows were over, uh -huh. uh, have a bite, sit down in their office and start conducting business. So this was 2 o'clock in the morning and, and they would go on for a few hours and, and that's, uh, uh, that's what happened. Harold Stern uh, discussed me with the Schuberts and J.J. Schuberts. I'd love to hear him play, I'd love to hear his songs. And Stern was calling up to make an appointment for me to play the next night at 2 o'clock in the morning. At 2 o'clock in the morning. It didn't seem like anything to him. I was delighted because it meant I wouldn't have to go to school the next day <laughs> or the day after because I'd have to recover from staying up so late. And I went down there. I was brought there with uh, my first lyric writer, who was a friend of my brother's, and played, I don't know, we had maybe 40 songs or 30 songs written. Today they would really be, even at that age, and that was about fifteen. You were fifteen, I guess. I was fifteen, fifteen, fifteen and a half, somewhere in that area. Uh -huh. And you already had forty songs. Well, I used to write twenty a day. You know, <laughs> uh, everything sounded good to me then. It's when you get older that you begin to have some perspective and taste. Do you feel a warmish, kind of glowish, kind of peculiarish sensation? No, it's a sort of uh, quiverish, uh, shiverish, flipperty gibberish sensation. Does it make you feel hummingbirds in your heart? Butterflies in me feet. Bees in your bonnet. Stars in me breeches. It makes you want to dance. Well, I hadn't noticed that. And sing. It does, it does. Something sweet, something sort of grandish sweeps my soul when thou art near my heart feels so sugar can dish my head 
feels so ginger beer something so dareish so i don't careish stirs me from limb to limb it's so terrifish magnifish delish to have such an amorish glamorish dish we could be oh so bright and bloomish skies could be so bluish blue like could be so loving bloomish if my wishes could come true Ella Logan and David Wayne from the original cast recording of Finian's Rainbow, performing something sort of grandish, a song by lyricist Yip Harburg, and the subject of today's edition of Anything Goes, composer Burton Lane. Anyway, we had all these songs, and uh, Schubert's fell in love with it. Uh, uh, actually, J.J. Schubert. I hadn't met Lee Schubert yet. And we were given a contract to write Greenwich Village Follies, which was going to start James Barton. Mm-hmm. When did you first sit down at the piano? Well, I, I started to, uh, the first time I sat down at the piano, I couldn't play. We had to play a piano. I used to pump it with my feet. But uh, I started to take lessons when I was about seven or eight. And uh, uncles and aunts of mine said that my father was crazy for having me take lessons. I was too young. Uh, and so that was called off. I took a few lessons, loved it, was really was uh, was uh, fell in love with music immediately and then the, my lesson stopped because everybody thought I was too young so it, I didn't pick up again until I was about 10 or 11 I was on a put under contract and and I was kind of following in the in a strange way in the footsteps of George Gershwin who also had been under contract ceramics in fact I was getting when I started I got two and a half dollars or more a week than he did I was getting getting $17.50 a week. Oh, my. <laughs> so that was a big deal. 
Did who were people like George Gershwin your gods in those days? Yes, I fell in love with George's music long before I met him, and uh, well, the, you know, in those days there were so many great writers. Uh, uh, to go to theater in those days was, I guess, the greatest excitement of my life. Uh, Do you remember the first show you ever saw? Yes, it was a show. Well, I the first show I saw was a show. It was what they used to have summer reviews. They only would play the summer, and I saw one review called "Keep Cool." And uh -huh. uh, the only thing I can remember about it uh, uh, at all is that they had one scene that was supposed to take place during a war where a guy comes out with a sign on his head, which said "Spy." <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing I remember. My first book show that I saw, the first one I ever saw, was a show by Rogers and Hart called Dearest Enemy. Certainly. And uh, of course, Dick and uh, and Larry were giants, and uh, and that time they hadn't become giants yet, but they were on their way. And they had some lovely songs in that show. Oh yeah. And of course, you know, I just fell in love, madly in love with the theater, and in those days. To go to a theater and just to hear the orchestra start the overture and begin to hear one original tune, I say original, I mean original, uh, not what we hear today. It seemed like everybody was, maybe the word to try to impress other people, other, other people who were also writers with their invention, their, their creativeness was a stimulant. Mm -hmm. And uh, George, to go to a, a Gershwin show and, and just hear the excitement of new rhythms and new music and new harmonies, uh, no tune ever sounded like anybody else's. You know, they, it was their original stamp. Uh, Yeomans, Dick Rogers, uh, George and Ira, Frimmel, Romberg, you know, these were, and Jerry Kern, of course, giants. They were just fabulous composers. Mm -hmm. And there was a great excitement about the musical theater in those days. The books were terrible. All the books were terrible. But the music was, was inspiring. I look at you, glory be. Something in your eyes I see. Soon begins bewitching me It's that old devil moon That you stole from the skies It's that old devil moon In your eyes You and your glance Make this romance Too hot to handle Stars in the night Just when I think 
wasn't it Ira Gershwin who introduced you to Yip Harburg? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I met George and Ira, and uh, uh, the, the family kind of took a liking to me, and I was very young, and they asked me to come around all the time. And uh, they would have open house every Sunday, and everybody in the world would be there. Mm. And uh, this was uh, a tremendous experience for me. George had a studio. They lived in a brownstone just off 103rd Street, off River, I mean off Riverside Drive on 103rd Street. And on the first, second floor, there was a living room, and they had two pianos, two grand pianos in the living room. And then George had a piano up in the studio, but. In the living room, I would come there and, and uh, George would say, have you written any new tunes? And I'd say, yes. And I'd play it and uh, he would sit down at the other piano and uh, play, we'd play two pianos. And then he would play something he just wrote. He would just improvise with yeah, you? He would, no, well he would improvise with me, yes, and then I would improvise with him. Uh-huh. And uh, I can't recall those days, you know what I mean? I can't, uh, to try to relive them is almost impossible so long ago, but they were wonderful. Yeah. They were just wonderful. Oh. And then they were, it was Ira, of course, who introduced me to Yip. And Yip and I uh, started to write a few songs together, but Yip really had to earn a living. Uh, uh, he had gone broke in the electrical appliance business. And he was working at that time with Vernon Duke, uh, Johnny Green, Jay Gorney and me. And we wrote a few songs together and uh, I would hear the songs he was writing with others. And that's where our friendship and our work uh, started. The early 30s were, were really an amazing period for you. You were teenagers, I was still a teenager, um, and you had four, uh, you had made contribution to four musical reviews that were all on Broadway in the same period of time, right. basically 1930, 31. They were uh, Three's a Crowd, The Third Little Show, Singing the Blues, and the Earl Car Carroll's Vanities, which basically you wrote the entire score for That's with Harold right. Adams. And, uh, uh, do you recall those days with fond memories? I mean, they must have been great times. Well, yeah, I tell you, it, it's, it's hard to remember anything. Uh, so much was happening. Uh, I remember the excitement I felt being around the Gershwins. That was exciting for me. Uh, the work, those work years, those early work years, are kind of vague. They, they're not vivid in my mind. Uh, one part, I would say, is more vivid than the others, and that was when I did some songs with Howard Dietz for, uh, a third little, for Three's a Crowd. Three's a Crowd, yeah. I also uh, became the, uh, I, w I was the pianist for the principals in that show. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to see how a show was put together. And because I was so young, uh, Dietz liked to have me around and, the, and Max Gordon, who was the producer of the show, uh, when they had their uh, production meetings, I was always invited to be there. And I loved it because I was learning. Yeah. Gave me a chance to hear what was going on, you know, behind the scenes, so to speak. When you're walking in the wood, every kiss will do you good. And besides, it keeps you out in the open air. When we're kissing, let's agree, only God can make a 
tree And the grass is like a cat But with room to stay Hammocks are handy Armchairs are strong Couches are dandy We haven't those but we'll get along We'll do what we do indoors With perhaps a few encores And besides, it keeps you out in the open air No walls or ceiling Rocking love in We like the feeling One touch of nature making us sing All the birds will shout what you're thinking of you know what to do so why don't you do it forget all your books and starting to learn by giving me kisses that I will return you know what to do so why don't you go to it Two songs from one of composer Burton Lane's earliest shows, Three's a Crowd, which first appeared in 1930. You heard off the Ben Bagley, Everyone Else Revisited album, Out in the Open Air, and Arthur Siegel performing Forget All Your Books. Now back to a pre-recorded interview with composer Burton Lane. How did you team up with uh, Harold Adamson? Because he was your primary collaborator in those, those in early In those early 30s. days, yes. Uh, well, it was a kind of a strange thing. Uh, I met some agent, and I, couldn't re I can't remember his name now, who wanted me to meet a certain lyric writer and made an appointment for me to be in his office. And I got there, and there was a lyric writer who he had made an appointment with to meet another composer. And when the other guy didn't show up, and the lyric writer I was supposed to meet didn't show up. He said, well, you might as well meet each other. Oh, that's amazing. So uh, Harold and I met. <laughs> and uh, we wrote, started to write a number of songs together. He was a darling fellow. I liked him a lot. He was a very solid, a very sound lyric writer. And we, we stayed together for many years. And it was really with, with Harold Adamson that you went out to Hollywood. Uh, right. Uh, was it, it was Irving Berlin who... His it was publishing his company, firm, yeah. His company. That sent you to uh, Sent us to uh, California for a six-week gamble. That's what they we called had, it. We, that's what it was. It was six weeks. They gave us a. a I think we were each getting seventy-five dollars a week, uh, plus a modest uh, expense account. Very modest, extremely modest. Mm -hmm. So we got an apartment out there, and uh, through a fluke. 
within a couple of days that we were there, we were found ourselves on the lot at Metro. And uh, the first songs that we wrote and had in pictures was uh, were three songs that we had written for for Dancing Lady. Right, and that and was a big hit. That was my first big song hit. Was uh, everything I have is yours. Actually, we had started that song before we went to Hollywood. Uh -huh. uh, For a show? Or? No, no. We just were writing songs, uh, uh, and uh, we had it half finished. And the strange thing is, is when I got out there, and when we got out there, uh, within a day or two, I called uh, a friend of my brother's. His name was Leonard Spiegelgas. In fact, his name is still Leonard Spiegelgas. <laughs> uh, Leonard was a writer. And when he heard that I was there, he said, well, what are you doing tonight? And I said, well, we haven't any plans. I think it was about two nights after we got there, <laughs> California. He said, well, come on over after dinner. He said, I'm having some guests for dinner. And Harold and I went over there. At that dinner party was a fellow by the name of Alan Rifkin who was teamed with Pinky Wolfson, if I remember the name correctly. They had done the screenplay for Dancing Lady. And when he heard some of our songs, he said, we're in terrible trouble. We need a ballad for our picture, Dancing Lady, which is shooting. They were already shooting. Uh, and it stars Joan Crawford and David Selznick is producing the picture. Not a, I mean, I knew the name of Crawford, but uh, I didn't know any other name he was talking about. So we played him half the song of everything I have. He said, gee, that sounds promising. So I said, we'll go home and we'll finish it. He says, can you be out at the studio tomorrow at 12 o'clock? He says, that you better be good because We've been thrown out before, and Selznick gets very mad if we don't bring him something. You know, uh, we've attempted to get a song into this spot a few times. Oh. And uh, he says, Selznick gets furious if it's bad. So I said, <laughs> I don't know whether it's good or bad at this point, but <laughs> we'll try. So we went home that night, and we finished the song and brought it out. And they went mad, mad for the song the next day. That's terrific. And this opened up a whole new uh, so horizon within, within, for us. Within days of arriving, you'd yeah, already we, established we, we had established ourselves, and then we were invited to uh, L.B. Mayer's, I guess it was his 50th birthday party in Santa Monica, where every star in Hollywood attended that party. And just, uh, you know, like a week and a half before, we were in New York without a dream of ever getting to California. I mean, it was the furthest thing from either one of our minds. Right. And here we are a week and a half later, not only in Hollywood, but at MGM, at L.B. Mayer's 50th birthday party, surrounded by every star, you know, it was like <laughs> being in a... And being about in 21 a, in a, years old, too. Uh, it was like a fairy tale, you know. Everything I have is yours, your part of me. Everything I have is yours, my destiny. I would gladly give the sun to you if the sun were only mine. I would gladly give the earth to you and the stars. 
that shine Everything that I possess I offer you Let my dream of happiness come true I'd be happy just to spend my life Waiting at your back and call Everything I have is yours My life, my all The more I'm with you, the more I can see My love is yours alone You came and captured a heart that was free Now I have nothing left I call my own Everything I have is yours Oh, you're part of me Everything I have is yours My destiny I would gladly give the sun to you If the sun were only mine I would gladly give the earth to you And the stars that shine Everything that I possess I offer you Let my dream of happiness come true I'd be happy just to spend my life Waiting at your beck and call Everything I have is yours My life, my all Ruth Edding performing Everything I Have is Yours written for the 1933 film Dancing Lady by Harold Adamson and Burton Lane. When did you start to work with Frank Lesser? I was on the contract to Paramount in 1937 and 1938. And when my option came up in, at the end of my first, I was there for two years, after the first year, an agent, my agent, brought two writers to, to uh, Paramount and wanted to get my opinion. He thought they were pretty good, and he wanted to get my opinion of what I thought of them before he submitted them. Mm -hmm. And he brings in Frank Lesser and a writer called Manning Sherwin. Manning Sherwin wrote lovely tunes, but Frank Lesser's lyrics just bowled me over. I, I just went crazy when I heard his lyrics. And the head of the studio was a good friend of mine, Lou Gensler at that time. Lou had been a songwriter. And I went to the front office and I said, I've just heard a, a team of writers. The lyrics are sensational, absolutely sensational, and helped get Frank his first contract. In fact, they both got a contract. Uh, they were given a 10-week contract with options to see how it would work out. And this is kind of a, a cute uh, observation, a cute story. There was a shortage of offices 
and Frank would use my office at Manning Sherwin. I came in the day after they signed the contract. And there's a guy measuring Frank for shorts, for shirts, uh, for suits. He went absolutely wild the minute he had his contract. <laughs> Before that, he had been broke. He had been terribly broke. After I had heard him, Frank called me up and said, come over to my place. I'd like to show you some lyrics. And I found out then for the first time that he and Sherwin had not been getting along. Oh. And uh, it looked like they were not going to continue working together. And I was sitting there. I, this, I had gone there after my dinner. And uh, when suddenly uh, Frank was married to Lynn Lesser at that time. Frank said, have you had dinner? And I said, He's, yes. He said, you sure you won't join us? And I said, I, no, I, I don't won't have anything. They Here's what they had for dinner. They took out an apple and they sliced it in half and they were going to give me a piece of that if I hadn't had mine. They each ate half and one can of baked beans. I mean, that's how broke these people were. They were wow. really uh, <laughs> flat, you know. It's hard to imagine Frank Lester. And the minute he got the contract, he was being measured. <laughs> for uh, Not that he was going to make a fortune, He, yeah. you know, not yet. But the change was so dramatic. I, oh, it that's was funny. funny. That is funny. Was College Swing the, the first picture that you did write with him? I don't remember the names of the uh, of the pictures. Uh, it might have been. But we uh, we had some success with uh, three or four songs in, oh, in a very yeah. short period of time. Terrific uh, stuff with him. I mean, I, I love how, How'd You Like to Love Me, the, the song that that Bob Hope and Martha Ray sang. Yeah, well, let me picture. tell you about How'd You Like to Love Me, because that's a, a kind of a tragic story. There was a, a, a performer, I don't know whether you would remember her, and I called Lydia Roberta. Oh, I, I know the name, yeah. She was, I don't, I, I don't know, Yugoslavian or Hungarian. She had been in a show which I had seen on Broadway. It was Harold Allen's first show. And the show, the song she sang was Sweet and Hot. And she used to do a thing with the oh, sweet hot, got to be sweet, got to be hot, and she and it was used in a very humorous way. So when we were given the assignment of writing a song for her, I said we should get something that has a oh, in it, and we came up with how'd you like to love me, how'd you like it, so she could get some fun out of it. And we wrote this song, and I was told by the studio to uh, uh, one day to, to go over to her apartment and teach it to her. So I went there, and she lived in a very modest uh, building, and I rang the doorbell, and there was no answer. And I rang, and there was no answer, and I rang, and there was no answer. I said, see, this is, uh, I'm sure I have the right place. Checked it all out. And I went back to the studio. And late that afternoon in the papers, Lydia Roberta was found dead oh. in her apartment at this hour. Oh, and my. that's how Martha Ray uh, took her place in the film. Oh, my. Yeah, it was. So that was very upsetting because uh, she was a darling girl and, and had such a, you know. Yeah, the a, recordings of her are, are 
I have a record. She had such hers. quality, and she was on her way to becoming a big star. Mm -hmm. So that was the history of that song. Anyway, uh, the song did become... I almost want to song after that story. This, well, the song became a, a pretty big song, with yeah. Bob Hope and Martha Ray doing it. And they, it was a marvelous lyric, uh, Frank. You had so many, I mean, there's so many wonderful songs that you two wrote together. Uh, I Ladies in Love with You yeah. from Some Like It Hot and... Uh, I Hear Music. Later on, and yeah. And a lot of people have come to me with, uh, they've heard, uh, it's been on television a number of times, Dancing on a Dime. Yeah. Do you know the song? Yes, I do. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. From that film from, of that yeah, name. right.
Well, sir, here's just how it stands. You've got romance on your hands because the lady's in love with you. If you've been traveling by plane, but she begs you to please take the train, bet you three to one the lady's in love with you. And if she waters every day, no, she hasn't got a darn thing to say. You're a cinch, the little lady's in love with you. And Sunday night, when you take her to see a movie, Two loges, please. Darling, darling, the balcony seats will do. Yeah. <laughs> well, sir, that's just how they act. You might as well face the fact. Yes, sir. The, the lady's in love with you. For you. never dreamed of making love with so many people near. Now I'd never dreamed of making love, but love is here. Isn't this sublime? We're dancing on a dime. The crowded floor is perfect for a nice romantic time Oh, how can I help but hold you tight Here in a warm embrace There isn't an inch of space For being discreet So I repeat Isn't this sublime This dancing on a dime We're hand in glove the picture of a romance in its prime. Now, darling, I guess I'd better confess, for I knew it all the time, that I'd be close to you dancing on a dime. 
Four songs written by Frank Lesser and Burton Lane in the late 30s, early 40s. You heard Martha Ray and Bob Hope sing How'd You Like to Love Me from the film College Swing, followed by Bob Hope once again and Shirley Ross singing The Ladies in Love with You from a film entitled Some Like It Hot. The last two songs were both from the film Dancing on a Dime and featured Peter Lynn Hayes in the original cast singing I Hear Music, followed by Johnny Desmond from a Ben Bagley Frank Lesser Revisited album singing the title song from Dancing on a Dime. You've been listening to part one of a four-part look at the career of legendary composer Burton Lane. Associate producer Jeff London. Anything Goes Backstage with Broadway's Best is produced and hosted by Paul Lazarus. For more information, visit anythinggoespl.com. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and follow us. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.